Welcome to the Old Bridge Baptist Church podcast. We hope you find the following sermon to be edifying for your walk with the Lord. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can also visit our website at obb.church for more info. Now here's the sermon. Thank you, Harry. We'll anoint you as a partial Italian for getting that. <laughs> pretty good job there, buddy. It's not easy. A lot of, a lot of vowels. I'm going to have you turn your Bibles with me to Haggai chapter 2. Um, thank you for having us again. Seven is God's number, so we trust and pray that things will, obviously God's will will be done today. And um, so just, uh, again, a privilege to come and speak to you, a privilege to stand in the pulpit. I don't know if I've ever shared my testimony, but I can tell you um, that I am the chief of all sinners. Um, I, got, I got saved out of a very troubled youth being arrested six times by the time I was 16. And uh, I can honestly say if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I, I believe I would be dead or in prison. And uh, so um, all glory to him. Every time I stand in the pulpit, I am reminded uh, that I'm unworthy to stand here and I am the chief of all sinners and that today could be the last time I ever preach. And so I try to preach with that mind. That, that I want to give um, all of my heart and all my effort into uh, what I speak. So I'm going to have you bo- turn your Bibles again to Haggai chapter 2. I usually preach out of my phone simply because I can see it better. Um, but I have, a, I have a Bible here as a backup. Um, now, let me, get, let me go through t- uh, context. Sorry, you know what? I'm going to have you go to Ezra um, chapter 1. I spoke on Haggai a few weeks ago, uh, or the last time I was... Uh, not last time I was here, but the time before that. But I want to give you a context. In order to understand Haggai, you have to understand Ezra. Because the time period is the same. The way our Bibles are laid out are not chronological. They're laid out in a specific um, order, um, like history uh, or songs, etc. So um, it's not necessarily chronologically. But Haggai and Ezra are in the same time period, and that really gives us insight. So Ezra chapter one, it says this, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Let me just stop there. This is an awesome prophecy that was fulfilled. In Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah told the nation of Judah, um, because Israel had been taken captive, Judah and Benjamin, he told them this, that you're going to be taken captive for 70 years by Babylon, and then you're going to be brought back into Jerusalem, okay? In 605 BC was the first deportation. That's when Daniel, Daniel when he writes, is writing from Babylon, okay? 70 years later, which is now, okay, Persia conquered Babylon, In about 536 BC, so in the 70th year, there is a remnant that goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, okay? God stirred up a heathen king to send them back to Jerusalem, and according to Ezra 6, 
He paid for the whole mission, which is amazing. Why would he do that? Because the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. That's why. Now, the Bible says this. Um, the, Lord, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and by the way, Daniel was one of the um, prominent members of Cyrus's kingdom. And he met Cyrus, um, according to Herodias. And so, anyway, that's just an interesting point. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. He understood that because Daniel told him. And he showed him the prophecy in Isaiah. Now, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you all of his people may... His God be with him, and had let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. So he gives a proclamation and says, whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem, you, can, you are permitted under my permission. I am the world power. You will be protected. And you can rebuild the temple. Now notice that, by the way, they're going there to rebuild the temple, not the walls. That came much later with Nehemiah. Okay, that's a whole other story. But that plays in the prophecy. Now go to Ezra chapter 3. Or excuse me, go to Ezra chapter 4. Sorry. Ezra chapter 4, verse 24. Again, we're building a context for Haggai chapter 2. Go all the way down to verse 24. Ezra chapter 4. Now, in verse 24, it says this, Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased and was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, to make a long story short, there are enemies and the enemies stirred up the government back in Persia. And by armed soldiers forced the building of the temple to cease. They had laid the foundation. Okay. And it will cease until the second year of Darius. By the way, Darius was a, a generic term. Okay. Just like Caesar. So it's not the Darius of David's or of, of Daniel's time. It's a different Darius. It's just a general term for, for, for the leader. Until his second year. Which puts us at 520 BC. So. They go back in 536. They get settled. They build a foundation. It's built around 535. And then they are stopped for 15 years. Until 520. That's when Haggai picks it up. Now. Go to Haggai now. Chapter 1. Okay, again, we're laying this foundation. I think it's very important for us to understand this text. You have to have a, a context. That's how you understand the scriptures. So Haggai chapter 1, we're going to be speaking about Haggai chapter 2, but I want to just touch on chapter 1 just to, to show you some things. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now note what it says. In the second year of King Darius, that's where he just left off, right? It's going to stop until the second year. Now it gives us more specific things. In the sixth month, now note that, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Serubabel. That's who was in, in, in Ezra. Uh, and, and it goes on. Okay, Serubabel was the governor. Now, so you see the context ties in. Okay. Now, go to Haggai chapter 1, verse 13, because we're going to get closer now to the context. They're rebuked in chapter 1. We'll talk about that later. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the, Lord, the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So it was sitting dormant for 15 years under armed guard. And God says, don't mind the guards. Don't mind the king. I want you to start building this house again. So they did. Very courageous. Because they could have had their heads chopped off, quite frankly. I mean, that's what could have happened. But they do, because God's on them, with them. Now, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Uriah. So this, this continues on to the 24th day. So that's, that's about 24 days after Haggai comes on the scene. So seemingly now they've been building the temple for 24 days. Okay? Chapter 2 goes on more. In the seventh month on the 21st of the month. So this is another... Um, almost another month beyond that, okay? So they've probably been building the temple now for about um, six to seven weeks. They, they restart it. So the restart program's about six to seven weeks in, okay? Now, so after, so, so that gives us the setting. Now, the title of my message today is Overcoming Obstacles because despite the fact that God was with them, Despite the fact they started the temple, there were still obstacles in their mind that was preventing God's blessings. What were they? Number one, they saw the small and ordinary as insignificant. This temple was not Solomon's temple. It was not elaborate like that. And because of that, they lacked enthusiasm because they saw the small as insignificant, which we do as well. They were driven by results. They looked at the two temples. They looked at their circumstances and they thought, God's not with us, really. You see, six weeks into the building, pro into the building process, there was a lot of people that weren't really enthused about this work. Number three, they allowed circumstances to discourage them. Again, they're looking at a city that's in rubble, basically, and they were, they were discouraged. And they are haunted by past failures. That discouraged them as well. So for this project to go on, they had to overcome some obstacles. So let's pray, and then we'll consider this scripture. Father, thank you this day for the word of God. Thank you for Haggai. Uh, thank you for the scriptures that were read today. And even Mark's comments when he said, this is the eternal word of God. And it is. We're not standing up here talking about stories, although this is a story. 
We're talking about truth. We're talking about specific events that happened in history that you want us to know about. And we pray today as the word of God is spoken, that you would hide me behind the cross and that Jesus Christ would be lifted up. And the spirit of God would take the word of God and would apply it to our lives as he sees fit. We pray your will today on the vote. May you get the glory, Lord. That's all we want. And we thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Overcoming obstacles. They saw the small and ordinary as insignificant. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, okay, son of Jehoshaphat. Again, the same people in Ezra. That's why these fathers, the lineage is given. The high priest. And to the remnant of the people saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is Now look at this. Is This is the issue. Is this not nothing in your, or excuse me, is this not in your eyes as nothing? There's the problem. There's the issue. That's why Haggai is coming six or seven weeks into the building project. And he comes back and says, we have a problem. And here's the problem. Some of you, 66 years ago, saw Solomon's temple in all of its glory. And it was glorious. And now you're looking at this temple and you, you're looking at the foundation. By the way, in the end of Ezra chapter 3, when the foundation was built, some were cheering and some were crying. Why? Because those that have saw Solomon's temple now looked at this temple and basically said, this is just a heap of rubbish, to paraphrase. Useless. This is useless. And God says, we have a problem. Because you're looking at this project. My house. The building I told you to construct. As it's nothing. You see, the problem for us is we often can judge the small and ordinary as insignificant. Elijah, when he stood before the prophets of Baal and he cried out before God and fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering, even though he put gallons and gallons of water over the offering. When he saw that and the people saw that and they said, the Lord Jehovah or Yahweh, he is God. Elijah thought there was going to be a revival. But there wasn't. And he got discouraged. And then God showed him great miracles. But then God says the power is in the still small voice of God. You see the real power in Christianity. 
is not the signs and wonders because we can be deceived by that. It's not the great big churches and the mega churches with their massive bands and their massive music and people say that God is in here and he may not necessarily even be a part of that church because they get caught up with the hype. No, the power of God is in the still small voice that's working in the heart of his believers and making us more like Christ. That's the power of God. That's where God lies. That's the nitty gritty. That's the day by day. The things that don't look exciting. That's where God is working in the heart. The heart that says, God, make me like you. And God begins to work in the heart. That's the power of God. That's the miracle of salvation. Not the big, great, big mega church with all the 5,000 people and the massive uh, music and the preacher that's just preaching to tickle people's ears. God's not in on that. Nothing against big mega churches, but most of them aren't really cutting it straight, if we're going to be honest. And so God says, I need to show you something. And look at verses 7 to 9. And he goes down. In verse 7 of chapter 2, he says this, and we'll talk about this later. And I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. We'll talk about what that means in a moment, but look at this. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. You disdain this temple. God says, you're just looking at the physical the Jews were so proud of their temple. That's why Jesus says, I will, I will destroy this temple and, 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 and three days rebuild it. He was speaking himself, but they thought their temple. And that's why God told his disciples that that temple is going to be leveled to the ground. You're focusing on the temple. And even in Ezekiel's time, they kept saying, the temple, the temple, God's not going to destroy He's not going to destroy Israel because of the temple. But they kept focusing on the building and how glamorous it was instead of the God that met inside of the temple. That's the glory of the temple. And in verse 8, he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, that phrase, the Lord of hosts, the God of all creation, the God of even the angels, the God has made everything. Very strong term. I think they were probably still concerned about the finances of the temple. But then look at verse 9. The glory of this latter temple. It's like Haggai was pointing. You see this temple. This temple that you disdain. God says the glory of this temple. Right here. Shall be greater than the former. Than Solomon's. Why? And in this place, excuse me, at the glory of this temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Why? Why was Zerubbabel's temple more glorious than Solomon's? Because if you looked at him, no comparison. You see, Zerubbabel's temple would have been um, not destroyed, but it would have been broken. Through the Maccabean Wars. You know, that time in between the, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And then it was rebuilt and made more glamorous. But that's not the glory God was speaking of. You see, Herod made it more glamorous. And Herod called it his temple. By the way, Herod called himself the king of the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew. He was actually an Edomite. The real king of the Jews was Jesus Christ. That's why he got so mad when the wise man came and said, where is the king of the Jews? It was like a slap in Herod's face. You're not the king of the Jews. Where is the king of the Jews? But Herod made this temple. But wait, what made, what made this temple, still that building, what made it glorious and glamorous was that Jesus Christ was in the presence of that temple. That's what made it glorious. And so God is saying that you look at this temple and some of you just disdain it. But let me tell you, there's going to be more glory because Jesus Christ is there. And that's the same thing with the church. The church is a building. What makes the church glorious is the presence of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is present when two or three come and gather in his name. When his children, his, re his reborn children... His children that have been bought by his blood. Not buildings filled with people and music and positive thinking. That's not glorious. It's the presence of Christ. And that's what we see. And that's where they failed. And so Haggai was reminding them. They were also driven by results. Which we can do the same. They weren't motivated. Look at verse 4. He says again in verse 3. Is this not in your eyes as nothing? I mean God was. I think he was angry. Yet now be strong Zerubbabel. Verse 4 says the Lord. And be strong Joshua. The high priest. And be strong all ye people of the land. Says the Lord. And work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. You know what God says there? I told you to build this temple. And you're looking at the temple and saying, well, we're going to build this temple, but we don't like the results. Therefore, we're not going to be faithful. And God's not concerned about us. God's the one that produces results. God asks us to be faithful, not to produce results. God wants us to go about and do his work. Now, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 for a second. And as somebody that was a missionary on, on the field of Catholic Ireland in two different church plants, God had to remind me of this over and over and over because building a church in Ireland is like trying to dig a cave with a teaspoon. It's hard work, but it's God's work. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Our friend Noah. By faith Noah being divinely warned. 
of things not yet seen. Now, according to Genesis 2, there was no rain. So there's no evidence there was rain when God said to Noah, build an ark because I'm going to pour out rain and flood the world. That's a hard task. You know a harder task for him? For 120 years, he had to preach and say, it's going to rain and the, earth, and the world's going to be flooded. How would you like that task? For 120 years, he did. By faith, being divinely rewarded, things not seen, moves with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Now look at this. Was Noah's preaching for 120 years a waste of time? No. Who went on that boat? Him, his wife, his three sons, and his daughter-in-laws. Which shows you something about his walk with God. Because his family followed him on that boat. They didn't reach anyone else though. 120 years. 120 years. That's longer than any of us have been alive. By far. What did he do? By which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. He condemned the world. You see... People couldn't stand before God and say, well, we didn't know. They say, well, Noah preached for 120 years. So you're condemned, but it's not on me. It's on you. And so God just asked us to be faithful. Because it glorifies his name. Because when people stand before God, they can't say, I didn't know. We lead the results with God. They were driven by results. And because they were driven by results, they didn't want to do the work. They got discouraged very quickly. John Owens was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s. Some people would say that he's the greatest theologian in the English language. He's a very educated man, extremely intelligent. I mean, his greatest theologian in English language, he was extremely intelligent. He was tied in with Parliament. He spoke to Parliament. He was um, very thought of and a prominent and noble man of that time in the English government. He was also friends with a man by the name of John Bunyan, who was a tinker, an itinerant preacher, uneducated man. He was criticized for, being, criticized for being close friends with John Bunyan. He once said, if I could have the power of John Bunyan when he preached, I would give up all my education. John Bunyan was thrown into prison because he would not sign or, or adhere to the Book of Common Law at that time, which was a, a Protestant book in, in the... the um, England was, was uh, tied into the, uh, the church was tied into the, the government. He was thrown in prison for seven years. Horrible. Had a blind daughter, a new wife, um, because I think his first wife passed away. Said he was in so much pain, knowing that his daughter, the, the state of his daughter, 
uh, in this situation. He could have taken a skin and ripped it off his face. While he was in prison for seven years, he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. That book didn't go anywhere until he died. But then John Owens got a hold of it, and because he had contacts, he said, I, I think we have something here. Pilgrim's Progress is the most published book in the English language and other languages other than the Bible in the world. Don't decide the things small, decide small things. People mocked John Bunyan. God used them in a great way. And he didn't even know it. <laughs> he didn't even know it. They were driven by, driven by results. They allowed circumstances to discourage them. Very easy for that to happen, isn't it? So go back to Haggai. Very easy when circumstances aren't going the way we want them to go. It's very easy for us to get discouraged. They're looking at this temple. They're probably saying, you know, I've lived here for 15 or 16 years. I came back to rebuild the temple. Look at this building. Why did I come back? This is extremely discouraging, discouraging to me. My circumstances aren't good. The nation of Israel, even though we're back, we were, it was been prophesied that we would come back into Jerusalem in 70 years. We thought it would be something more um, elaborate than this. The temple, the, the, the city, there's only about 50,000 people back. This isn't what we thought. We're discouraged. Verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. One commentary said this, undoubtedly fear gripped many of the returnees, fear that God had written an eternal Ichabod over Jerusalem. It wasn't what they expected. They probably thought when God sends us back to Jerusalem in seven years, he's going to come back and the city is going to be glorious. And the temple is going to be glorious. And it wasn't. And some of us are sitting in circumstances now that are extremely discouraging. And it's very easy for us to think that God has declared Ichabod over my life. Where is God through all this? Where was God when Joseph was sold into slavery at 17 years old? You'd been better to be dead than be sold into slavery, humanly speaking. Where was God when Joseph took his stand, and not an easy one, against Potiphar's wife? And he ends up in prison. God, I took a stand and I'm in prison. Where's God at? The Bible says he was with Joseph, just like he's with us. We get the idea when, when, when good things happen to us, God is smiling over us. I must be doing something good. And when bad things happen, and I must be doing something bad. And it's not true. It's not true. God's love to us is constant. It's always the same. 
The only thing that changes is sometimes we can recognize it more when we're in closer fellowship with him. John 15. But his love is always constant. It is our benefit to draw close to God because we sense that love and peace. But God's love is always there. James chapter 1. Verses 17 excuse me, 16 and following. Listen to this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. What's the deception? That's what we talked about. When circumstances are not favorable, God is mad at me. That's a natural reaction. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the fathers of light, the father of lights. What's that mean? Father of lights. Fourth day of creation. God created the sun, the moon, and the stars to be light for us. Isn't that amazing? The size of the universe. I'll just give them light. I'll just make the universe. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When the earth rotates on its axis, sometimes there's a shadow and we don't see the sun. And that great big ball of fire, we don't see. Sometimes we see the sun and sometimes we don't see the sun. Sometimes there's a variation. Sometimes there's a moon, sometimes there's not. Sometimes the clouds block. But with God, he's not like that. There's no variation. God is always good. God is always good. God is always good. Even in your hardship, even in your darkest hour. God is always good. He's always good. Let's see the people in Haggai's day. They allowed the circumstances to discourage them. And they were fearful. And they were wondering, is God even with us? Look at our circumstances. Is God even with us? As said, was said today, this morning, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Never. And never in the original, original language means never, right? Now, I'm kind of running alone time, but I want to at least touch on these verses here. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. I believe this is end time connotations. When he says a little while, remember God, a thousand years is, is like a day to God. So he's pointing them to their distant future. Yes, there's going to be blood blessings in the immediate future, but the bulk of our blessings are in the distant future. God is going to shake the heaven and the earth. Just read Revelation chapter 6 to 19. That'll happen. But in verse 7, he says, and I will shake all nations. You're disdained by nations right now. That's discouraging you. But I will shake all, all nations and they shall come to the desire of 
all nations. This morning, Mark read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. That's what that passage is exactly what it's speaking of. You can go through it. Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 4. And there's other passages. It's speaking of the millennial kingdom. Someday, all Israel's enemies, especially those in the Middle East, there'll be the time of the tribulation period. There'll be 144,000 uh, males that go out, virgin males that go out and preach the gospel. And people, there's going to be a revival during the, the tribulation people. And people from all over the world are going to get saved. And then Jesus is going to come back in Revelation 19 and set up his kingdom. And those that survive the tribulation will humanly enter into the millennial kingdom. We will have glorified bodies. But people from all over the world will come to this Jerusalem that they're standing in, that's leveled, that the people are discouraged and thinking in their heads, no doubt, that we thought this was going to be different. And God says, don't worry, you work, because there's a bright future in Jerusalem. Someday all these enemies that disdain you will come to this city, and it will be the desire of the whole world. They're looking at rubble. It's not going to be like that forever. So to be, to, to be encouraged, we look beyond. We look beyond our circumstances. We can have joy in the midst of that, because if we draw close to Christ, rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Find your joy in God. Philippians 4. We can have that joy in the midst of hardship. But we can also know that circumstances will be much greater in the future, as was read in the Revelation passage today. And I think God encourages them that way. The final point is they were haunted by their past failures. And some of us face the same. We can look back with our children. We can look back at our parenting. We can look back at decisions. We can say, only if I did this, perhaps. I only, only can point you to Josiah, who was the godly as king, even more godly than David. There was no king that rose before or after Josiah that sought God with all of his heart and his children were a disaster. Do not be discouraged by our past failures. God doesn't want us to look to the past. We all have made mistakes. We now look to the future day by day. And I think that's what God's saying here in verses 15 and 19. And it could be other things. It could be business decisions. It could be many things. Don't look to the past. And now carefully, verse 15, consider from this day forward, this day forward. In verses 10 through 14, he's talking about his chastening hand on Israel. The book of Haggai starts in chapter 1 with God's chastening hand. And I think he's saying, I'm still chastening because your heart's not right. Get it right. Remember, chasing the hand of God is always to get us right with God. Get it right. I chastened your nation in the past. Forget that. Oh, only if our fathers would have behaved differently and obeyed God, we wouldn't be in this predicament. Forget it. 
It's done. It's water off the duck's back. Now, carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Talks about the chastening in verse 16, 17, 18. Verse 19. Look at the end. But from this day, I will bless you. Forget about what happened. Forget about the past. Focus on serving Jesus Christ now. Don't let it discourage you. David, when David was, and I, I think I gave this example last time, or I, we were in this passage last time, but when David fled from Saul and went to the high priest in Nob, all the priests, their wives, and their children were wiped out by Saul as he ordered Doeg to do it, to eat him right. And when one son, the highest priest's son, fled and came to David, David said, paraphrasing, I am responsible for what happened. All those people are wiped out because of my stupidity. But you know the great thing with David? He didn't stay there. He turned from that and said, but there's nothing I can do. I can serve God. And that's what God's trying to tell them here. Move on. Move on. And now this will kind of introduce us into the Lord's Supper. Of course, we're celebrating that today. In verses 10 through 14, he teaches them something very important. If you're going to move on, you need to repent and get right. And the Lord's Supper, that's one of the reasons, the primary reason God gives us that. Yes, we are remembered what Christ did for us across. Of course, we meditate on that. Yes, we do this in remembrance that the Lord is coming back. Of course we do that. But it's also a time for us to examine ourselves. Because the Lord's Supper, although Christ, we're not changing juice into blood, literally. It's not literally the, bio, the, the body of Christ. It does represent it. And there is some intimate fellowship that takes place with the Lord's Supper. And we need to make sure our heart's right with God before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Before we break bread with God, we need to make sure we're right with Him. We're believers, yes, but we're in a right standing with God. In verses 10 to 14, it's kind of what God's saying to the, to the children of Israel. If I'm going to bless you here, you've got to have your hearts right. And He tells them that. Look at verse 12. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and with the edge he touches bread or stew or wine, or excuse me, or, or stew, wine, or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Okay? It's almost like this. Here's an analogy. If someone had COVID and someone who was well went over and touched them, Will the, will the person that's well make the sick person better? No. Okay? No. You're not going to make the sick. You're, what's going to happen? You're going to get sick, probably, right? That's what he's saying. Then the priest answered said, no. And Haggai says, if one who is unclean because of, because of a dead body touches any of these, 
will it be unclean? Now, the priests understood, and a whole book of Leviticus speaks about this, they couldn't touch an unclean body, but there were so many things they had to do before they could sacrifice. They had to be ceremonial clean before God, but really would have pointed to the heart. They couldn't make a sacrifice. They couldn't do that unless they were right with God. In fact, their life's dependent on it. So the priest said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered in verse 14 and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Before you build this temple, get yourself right with God. Don't worry about, you're, you're concerned about the building, you're concerned about Israel. You just need to be concerned about making sure your heart is right with God. And that's what the Lord suffers about. Make sure your heart's right with God. The psalmist says in Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24, Search me, O God, and try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Our hearts are deceitful. So when the elements are passed out, or you have the elements now, we're going to have a time in a moment, we're going to have... Um, Rich is going to come up and we're going to have some song. But when we come back and break bread together and participate in the Lord's Supper, in between that time, we're going to have a time to make sure our hearts are right with God before we drink the cup and eat the bread. Because again, we're having fellowship with God. And it's serious. It's serious before God. So we're going to have... Uh, Rich, come up, and then I'll come back. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old Bridge Baptist Church. Please consider subscribing to our podcast on the platform that you're currently listening on. We appreciate your support, and we hope you have a God-blessed day.